our Hollywood Heights, here's Bob and Suzanne. Chicken joke! I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. Baby, you're the great. Here comes the judge. More cowbell. Matt Basher. There's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business. Welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 28. My name is Bob McCullough. And my name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And we are kind of tired. We're exhausted, I think is the word. We have been so busy getting our book out, which will be released September 30th. And you can find Where Hollywood Hides Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. If you go to the website at wherehollywoodhides.com and order there, your book will be delivered. It will be shipped out September 30th, and you'll get a 20% discount buying at the website, as opposed to your local bookstore, where it will also be, and on Amazon, where it's always going to be available. Anyway, it's been a great experience, and we're pretty excited. The book is going to look even better than we thought. So... I was reading, you know, I am a big Beatles fan. Indeed. Not I, a Stones fan, I, I, Beatles yeah, fan. Please, okay, go ahead. So the Stones, it, by the way, are still working and playing. And the Beatle music is still being that's made true. into classical music. That's true. Uh, it was 50 years ago this year that uh-huh. the movie Hard Day's Night came out. At the time, the movie Hard Day's Night was a very unusual format for a motion picture. And they really didn't have any expectations on what it was going to be like. It ended up being a big hit, of course, because the Beatles had just come off a huge run of being the most fabulous. The movie's 50 years old? 50 years old, Bob. You're making me feel old. I remember seeing it like it was yesterday. Did you even see it? You said you didn't no, no, like I the did. Beatles. I didn't, like, but it was a huge deal at the time. I remember it was in black and white. It was kind of a documentary with a little well, bit of a story. Well, this is what they were saying. It was the first modern music video which after that MTV came about and it started the format for the concert films like we loved the Carrie, the Katy Perry movie and uh, it all started from there. Right after the Beatles did The Hard Day's Night, the group The Monkees, remember? Sure. They did a, a motion picture right. and it became a hit as well. I, I must say, I did not see The Monkees movie. I did. Okay, well. They were cute. Bubble gum, okay. They were cute. Hardly rock and roll. I, you were still in... Back in the Elvis days. Okay. <laughs> right? Right. And also, I was looking at the TV movie sections, you know how we do research, uh-huh. and this, this was something interesting. In 1964, which is 50 years ago again, I'm sorry to keep bringing wow. up 50 years. you're killing me here. The top biggest were only made for adults. Some of the movies were The Carpetbaggers, uh, From Russia with Love, James yeah, I Bond. I it. I right? it. A Shot in the Dark. Uh, what a Way to Go, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Pink Panther. Pink v- Panther was huge. Viva Las Vegas, is that Elvis? Elvis, yeah. Dr. Strangelove. Awesome. A Be- classic. I'll watch that anytime. Beckett and Man's Favorite. But the point of this article was those were the top 10 movies. Cut to 50 years, Yeah. the top 10 movies are made for kids. Right. This year, it was The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Lego Movie, Godzilla, Maleficent, you saw Divergent. That. Anyway, the point was they're making movies for kids. The audience has changed completely. I think more adults are interested in what's on television these days than kids are. And some more kid movies that will come at the end of the year are Planet of the Apes, Purge, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is coming back. Dumb and Dumber. I'll see that. Hunger Games. Horrible Bosses again. 
Really? Hobbit. Part, like part two? Horrible Bosses? Yes, okay. those are the franchises. Night at the Museum, Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. That sounds, like that sounds like it's going to be a classic. You like hot tubs. <laughs> and time machines. Sure. I like all of it. Perfect, perfect. Well, you know what I found interesting is taking my granddaughters to uh, the movies. Even though they are kid movies and they're rated PG and PG-13, they are so adult-like. Yeah, the bar has raised with respect to what's acceptable for kids these days, I fear. So I'm bringing out the old kid movies, you know, E.T. Right, right. And uh, the old teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Ninja Turtles. Turtles. Right. They look very different this year. I haven't, I haven't not seen the new one. They look kind of evil. Yeah, they look mean. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. But I want to see Hot Tub Time Machine. That's, oh, I'm sure you that's do. That's definitely on I'm my sure wish list. Do. Definitely on my wish list. You know, we've got a number of new sponsors on the website and on the podcast. Uh, one of them is Wine.com, America's number one online wine retailer. They offer thousands of wines, gifts, accessories, and great discounts. They even have free shipping. After our years of working on Falcon Crest, you know, we come to know quite a bit about what goes into a good glass of wine. Yes, Bobby, you have quite the palate. Indeed, indeed. So just go to our website at wherehollywoodhides.com. You'll find the wine.com links there. Uh, You'll get great discounts. Whether you're a casual wine drinker or a certified wine snob like I used to be, You'll find the best Wine.com values through the links at wherehollywoodhides.com. Speaking about wine, Napa Valley and their earthquake, huh? Big time. I I guess the price of wine will go up a little bit. So I'm glad we still have some of that old wine from Napa Valley from the Falcon Crest days. I wonder if that's going to... Or do we? Do we have any more? Yeah, we have it, but it... uh, Too old. I'm not sure I would be wanting to drink it. Yeah. Today, I I must tell you, I'm so excited. Um, We have an interview with... An old friend of mine who hired me on one of my very first television shows, Michael Sloan. I have to interject real quickly. Sure. We go back, you and I, but I remember when you first started working with Michael, uh-huh. you came home and said, I think I need a new wardrobe. Because you always talked about how well-dressed he was. He always wore a sport coat and a really nice shirt. Sometimes he had a little silk square in his jacket pocket. Uh, and he wore real slacks. The word classy. You said he looked very classy. Yeah, he always looked classy. And I always felt like I had just, I don't know, come off the beach or something. But yeah, yeah, and it gave him a much more mature kind of a leadership persona. But Michael is a guy who's got credits. Hold your breath here. He has written shows like Switch, McCoy, Columbo, Harry O, McLeod, Quincy, Battlestar Galactica, The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries, Sword of Justice, Sheriff Lobo, BJ and the Bear, that's where we met. He did a thing called The Master, and then he's very well known for The Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he created The Equalizer, which is a has, is going to be a feature this year starring Denzel Washington. Very exciting. It's going to be huge, and Mike has just completed a novel that's been released from St. Martin's Press called The Equalizer. What great timing. And the interview is just, it's really touching base with an old friend and hearing great stories about the shows he's written. And he's he, got, also, he also met his wife. Right, Melissa Anderson, the yes. actress. Yeah. And in the podcast, our listeners will hear some great career advice for those who want to become television writer. And something that I found very interesting and not that common, he sounded like he had a great respect for actors. And, and he's, he names number of people he's worked with as his good friend. So here we go. Great conversation with Michael Sloan. Hey, Bob. It's been a very long time. It has has indeed. And you sound exactly the same. Well, so do you. (laughs) All right. Well, we're doing well then, aren't we? 
Well, some some things haven't changed anyway. Right, right. My wife Suzanne is with us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. You know, I we've done a little bit of research on you, and I I've always known how prolific you were. But if you hear any paper rattling today, it's the list of your credits. It's unbelievable. Do you have any idea what the number is? I have not the faintest idea. It's well in the hundreds. Oh, really? Well, we printed it out, and it's like six pages, <laughs> single-spaced. It's crazy. It's... What was the show that we worked on together? Was it BJ and the Bear? BJ and the Bear. You and uh, Dick Lindheim hired me. That's right. That's right. I thought it was BJ. Well, you know, uh, one of the things in doing these podcasts and in building our website where Hollywood hides, we've had a chance to reflect on our careers, and Suzanne asked me, how did you exactly start writing on television? And I said, well, there was this guy named Michael Sloan. That was a, you know, that was a fun show. I mean, it, it's, uh, I wish they'd put it out in DVD. It's never been out. Oh, really? No, not to my knowledge, anyway. Universal's yeah. funny about that. I mean, The Equalizer, they brought out the first season. But anyway, now, because of the movie, I'm sure, now they're going to bring out all, all four seasons. So the oh, first great. one's out, and I think they're bringing, I think the second one just came out, and then they're going to bring out uh, season three and season four. So you might actually see some checks for 59 cents. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Love those would, checks, though. We love those checks. So, yeah, it wouldn't be much. It wouldn't be much more than that. But yeah, I've never seen. I've never seen any uh, DVDs for BJ and the Bear. Highly esoteric show that it was. Right, indeed, indeed. It was quite a challenge. We'll get to there in a second, Mike. Sure. Let's let's start at the very beginning. I'm really curious. I know you come from something of a theatrical family, but right. can, give us an idea what your childhood was like, where you were born. Some of the, uh, I guess, David Copperfield stuff, as Holden Caulfield would say. More Holden than David Copperfield, probably. Well, I was born in New York, actually, which is funny that now that I'm back here in New York, I hadn't, uh, I haven't lived in New York since I was a kid. Yeah, my folks were producers on Broadway, so it's a theatrical family, and I had a couple of well-known cousins. I had uh, one of my cousins was Keenan Wynn, you know, the character actor. Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. And then I also had another cousin, Milburn Stone, who played the old, uh, sure. played Doc Adams in Gunsmoke. Sure. So I came from I came from that background, and then uh, when I was a kid, my folks were producing a, a play in London, so they moved to London. The play was quite successful, ran a couple of years, and then they just fell in love with London and stayed. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in London for about sixteen years. Oh, really? And then I how exciting! Yeah. So you went to school well, there. Well, it was it was it was an exciting time because it was you know the '60s and the Beatles and Carnaby Street and all that. So you went to like an English prep school. I went to an English school and I went to a, a drama school. However, my meteorically unsuccessful career as an actor um, uh, that didn't work out quite the way I wanted. But, but then well, Michael, I came back. Michael, to... you seem to have lost your English accent. I have. I haven't been back in about 20 years. But when I used to go back and forth a lot, as soon as I got to England, my English accent came back. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, and then I'd come, I'd be gone a week or two weeks, whatever it was, and I'd get back to Universal, and my secretary would say, why are you talking all funny? What's going on? You know? <laughs> so that, that, that explains why when you and I worked together, you were always an example of sartorial splendor. <laughs> You dress, you dress very well and quite differently from a lot of California folks. I've just never been a kind of t-shirt guy for right. some reason. I don't know why. Maybe that's, maybe that is being brought up in those formative, formative years. But sure. then, you know, so then I went to Los Angeles, you know, and started trying to, you know, get into television there. So while you were in England, you had the show business entertainment bug, as it were? I'd always written stuff, um, even, you know, when I was a teenager. I wrote a whole bunch of awful books when I was a kid and a teenager. So I'd always had that, uh, you know, the writing thing. And uh, actually, it's interesting, I, if I I'll capsulize the story, that way I actually got a, a, an American credit was I used to love watching Columbo in, in England. 
And, you know, being a naive, you know, 24-year-old or whatever it was, I had no idea that not only, you know, if you weren't known, could you not write a script for Columbo, that they were all written in-house. But I had this great idea, I thought, for Columbo, so I wrote a story up, and then uh, I went to Los Angeles on vacation, gave it to somebody who gave it to somebody else. It finally somehow got its way to a guy named Peter Fisher, who was a story editor on Columbo. And then I got a phone call saying, um, can you come in and see me? And I Are you in. kidding? Really? No, this is the old days, remember? And sure. he said, you know, this was this sat on my desk for about three weeks, and I finally read it, and this isn't bad, but you need to do this, 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 and this, whatever it was. And I said, yeah, okay. So then I went away, and I came back the next day, and I hand-delivered it back. I said, okay, I made all the changes. He said, well, you didn't need to do it the next day. I said, well, I'm leaving. I'm going back to London tomorrow. He said, well, I'm going to offer you the screenplay. Oh, my. The teleplay for this. How and exciting. I said, I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And you're 24 he years said, old? Yeah. He said, why not? I said, because I have to go back to England tomorrow. He said, well, in these special circumstances, don't you think you could uh, you know, postpone your trip? I said, no, it's a prepaid ticket and I can't do that, but I appreciate it. So I went back to London and then he called me about a week later. He said, okay, you want to write it in London? Oh, man. So I... So I did. So when I finally went back to Los Angeles for good, I had one credit, but it was a terrific credit. It was a Columbo. And that proves something about the power of no. Sorry, I'm not available. Really makes them well, want you. Yeah, yeah. It was, and again, it, had I been, you know, living in Los Angeles, I would have known that there was no way this could have happened. So, well, exactly. Even 30 years ago, Michael. That's an extraordinary story. So I had a good, you know, I, I had one good credit to kick things off with. So when you sold that first Columbo script mm -hmm. and you're writing it in London, did right. you did you mail it back to Peter Fisher, fax it? I did. I mean, be, this, I is, this is pre-internet. This is when things yeah, were pretty clunky. Yeah, this is pre-everything. This is yeah. the Stone Age. Yeah. I, so, I sent it via Tom Toms. So, <laughs> right. Did you... Did you think to yourself, okay, this could be a career? No, I just, I mean, I was, I had formed a little production company and I had a couple of partners and we were, you know, we made two or three small budget movies. So, I mean, I was trying to get into a career, but I really didn't, I, you know, I was happy about the Columbo, but I didn't really think much about it on that level. And then it was only when I pulled up stakes and came back to the States and went to Los Angeles that I thought, okay, now, I'll, you know, I'll try and pursue this. And and, so I, and say, I wrote a second this... episode of a show called Harry O and that, that helped. At this time, did you had you had an agent yet? No, because no one would represent me. Even though you uh, had a premiere credit. No, they weren't interested. But I finally, after the Harry O got sold, um, there uh, there was, uh, and that was Peter Fisher again. And then I wrote like of the second season. They did two seasons Harry O. I wrote like seven of them. And during that time, at some point, I got an agent um, who is who is still a good friend of mine, a guy named Lou Pitt, who used to be at ICA. Sure. ICM, rather. So, so you're generating credits at this point rather quickly, and you're still in your early, mid-20s. Yeah, I was, well, I, was, I was in my late 20s by that point. So by now you're thinking, this is a career. Right. Well, hopefully. And I mean, the first big thing on that level that happened was that I, I got an overall deal at, at Universal, and then I was there uh, for five years. For the listeners who don't understand some of these nuances, define an overall deal. An overall deal was that you would make a deal with the studio, and they would pay you, there was a guarantee of X amount. And then, you know, if you got onto a show... For every episode, it was X amount. And so you, the idea was you tried to at least get up to your guarantee so the studio wasn't overpaying you. And then, of course, you, the idea was to make more than your guarantee. So basically, it was the old studio system for writers and producers. 
It was. When I got to Universal, uh, there had been some meetings with Glenn Larson, and he wanted me to come on to uh, McLeod. That was part and parcel of making the overall deal, that the studio knew that I had a, a spot there. Now, when that happened, when you met with Glenn and, and he brought you on to McLeod, did you be, then become exclusive to Glenn? Were you were you available for other executive producers? And when you worked for Glenn Larson, you basically, you know, were working for him. But theoretically, I was working for the studio. Right, know? right. But I did a lot of work with Glenn over those, you know, first five years. Tell us a little bit about that experience, because I think it it became a pretty, very close relationship, wasn't it? Yeah, no, Glenn was, you know, Glenn's a good guy, and, um, you know, it wasn't always a walk in the park. He was a very kind of driven and motivated guy, but he was a lot of fun as well. He's a funny guy. You know, we did a lot of good things together, and yeah, I had experience with Glenn where, so I had to write this first McLeod, which was called Bonnie and McLeod, and it was a trucking show. And the very first scene, McLeod drops off uh, his date at a hotel or somewhere, and the cab driver says, that'll be $20. And McLeod um, uh, reacts and pays him, and then the cab driver says, this is a rough area. You want me to wait? And McLeod says, be cheaper getting mugged. So, <laughs> really? <laughs> Glenn, so he read that first page, and, he's, and and after that he said, okay, I don't need to read the rest of the script. You you know, you can do, you can write jokes from McLeod, that's fine. Because you had, you had yeah. Glenn's sensibility down, yeah. Uh, what's the process? You have an idea for a script, and you go talk to somebody about it? I'd say, how about, you know, let's do a trucking show, because at that time, you know, 10 Good Buddy and all that was really in. And he said, okay, and I came up with some story threads and told him. I didn't write anything down, as I recall. And he said, okay, that's good. Just go and write that. You know, Glenn was fairly, you know, loose on those sort of things. You didn't have to put in a 40-page synopsis. And then, you know, he just said, yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. Is that how BJ so, and the Bear came about? BJ and the Bear, I don't know, because I didn't create it. it. It was Glenn and a guy named Chris Crow. And then they just, I'd been doing the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, and that was winding up. And so Glenn said, well, you know, I think I've sold this BJ and the Bear, so, you know, come on to that as the showrunner. So I don't think Glenn had a, a, a huge fascination with trucking, no. So what do, you th- what do you think the key at that point in your, in your career, what was the key to all this progress you were seeing? Because you were really on a freight train in terms of creative output. At a certain point, it's like I was happy to be at Universal, and McLeod was a classy show and, and challenging. and so. Also, at that to, time, uh, Universal had a lot going on on its lot. Oh, they had like 16 shows on there. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, so they that was really the heyday of, of, of Universal TV series. And Glenn had a lot of them, you know, and then they did pilots and stuff. And At some point in time, began to collaborate with Dick Lindheim, didn't you? Dick Lindheim was an executive at NBC. So I had, you know, I'd been in meetings with him on and off for various things. And then he left NBC and came to Universal. I know there was a two-week, this is during BJ and the Bear, Uh there was a two-week period where he was basically came on to BJ as as a producer and was kind of working for me at that point, just for two weeks. And then two weeks later, they kicked him upstairs and he became an executive at Universal. But that's when I I spent a lot of time with him. You know, we had lunch one day and we that's where the idea for the Equalizer came up, you know, between us. And it was interesting, had he been an executive at Universal at the time, he wouldn't have shared a credit because that's what you're being paid to do. Right. Is come up with ideas and deal with the creative uh, talent, et cetera. But because it was in the two weeks where he was, you know, he was a producer and basically working for me and Glenn, I felt that, you know, he deserved uh, co-credit on it. You had to be one of the, at that point in time, you had to be one of the youngest showrunners in Hollywood. That could be. Those sorts of thoughts never really 
swirled around in my head, Bob. You know. Right, right. You're too busy. I remember your hours. <laughs> oh yeah, they were. Uh... Anytime I showed up, I came in the studio. You were already there for an hour, and when I left, you were still there. There was a lot going on, and and Glenn had a lot going on. And I remember, I can't remember the show I was doing. And Glenn comes into my office and says, "Nancy Drew, we've got to get the script finished tonight. We've got a first act. I need a second act." He said, "So here's what happened. It's this, 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 and this. So get this done now." So he actually I dictates uh, an idea to you, and you yes, stay. Just the story beats for uh, for Act Two. Wow! So I said to him, I said to him, "Well, what happens in Act One?" He said, "What do you care what happens in Act One? You're not doing Act One. You're doing Act Two. That's television said, on the come, fly." Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I I sit there. So I wrote 15 pages. Okay, this is, and it ends with you know Nancy in a farm or something. The, guy has a shotgun on there and, you know, end of act two. So I bring it into Glenn at his office. Glenn's going through. He goes, good, good. No, no, no. Well, you wouldn't know that. That's okay. Good, good. Yeah, no, I can change it. Okay, great. I said, well, what happens in act three? He said, what do you care what happens in act three? <laughs> no, I'm not he, doing act. So well, I walked to the door and I turned and I said, will I get paid for that? He said, what, for one act? <laughs> no, that's would, vintage Glenn Larson. No, there was nobody quicker in a room than Glenn. That's for sure. Let, let me ask. I know the answer to this question, but tell us what your process is. Are you the kind of writer who sits and thinks about it, or do you just start typing? I don't think writers who, who say to you, I just sit there and I get struck by it, and then I start writing, and I don't know where it's going to take me. I mean, sometimes there's a little bit of that happening, but really, professional writers, as you know, being a professional writer, don't really, I don't think, do that. I mean, you think of an idea, then you kind of try to step it out in very broad strokes, so you have a shape, at least. You're talking about writing a teleplay or a screenplay. And then, you know, once you've got a shape that you can look at while you're, you know, then you can write fade in. I mean, that that's what I do. Well, I just remember, and, and this is a personal note, when I was on BJ, and we were also doing Sheriff Lobo at the same time, Right, right. And we had a pretty crackerjack staff with Frank Lupo and Sid Ellis as yep. uh, executive story consultant. And I recall the need for scripts and timing and things like that and revisions and Glenn turning things upside down occasionally. And you would write a script and I, you and I would start a script at the same time. And I felt very competitive with you and I never won the race because you were the fastest <laughs> writer I've ever met. There was a time when I could uh, I could write very quickly. I still, I, you know, I, I'm not slow, but I'm nowhere near what I, the speed at which I used to do. Yeah, it was, you, you, I think that could be one of the keys to your prodigious output. The fact that you don't you know, worry about it, you just start writing. I mean, you just go Yeah, well, as you know, when you're on a show, particularly if you're show running it, you know, with all the problems and the crises and whatever, the, however, you have to have a, you know, you have to shoot. And, you know, if a script comes in not quite right or whatever, you know, you've got to get it down to the stage so that it's, it's shootable and everyone's you yeah, know, there, feels like you got a shot at it. Yeah, yeah, there's there's something about having 150 people waiting for your pages, huh? Right, and I tried not to let that happen too often. So there are times when, you know, it's Friday and someone comes in and says, all right, well, um, this won't work, so we need it, you know, we need two two new acts by Monday, Michael. Well, you know, you don't really have a choice. Now, when you're a showrunner at Universal in that generation, tell me a little bit about the casting process, because there were a lot of really big-name guest stars on a lot of Glenn Larson shows. Glenn had a good relationship with a lot of actors uh, who became guest stars, and we had two or three, you know, terrific casting directors who'd been at um, Universal a long time. I remember Donna Dockstader. She was very good, and then there were a couple of other guys. It was a powerful machine because it was Universal. And 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 they had a number of people under contract as well. They still had that. They 
still had the contract program for actors. Well, and as, I, as I recall, Lindsay Wagner was part of that group, right? She was. But it was really, you know, again, like like all casting or the casting I've ever been involved with, it's really, you come in and you do a terrific reading, you know, you're, you've got a real shot to get the role. Now, Michael, you said you started out as an actor. At this point, did you have any regrets about that? Did you have the acting bug still, or were you... No, believe me. Hollywood is very happy I didn't stay in acting. <laughs> I'm a very actor, have been over my career, a very actor-friendly producer. You know, I really uh, care about actors, and I think it's very tough. And I don't care how successful you've been or, you know, how many good roles you've done. You know, when you come into an office with five or six or eight guys all sitting there, glassy-eyed, looking at you, and you have to read a scene, it's very tough. Even if you've got a lot of confidence, it's still a scary, a scary thing to go through. So, uh, well, because so I always try to, I always try to make the ride a little easier for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the actor's life really is—it's uh, either hot water or cold water. You're either accepted or rejected. And it doesn't matter how many times that you've been accepted. There's always the chance that well, you're not going, and it, you're not going to get this. And it, it's nine times out of ten, it's got nothing to do with your performance. A lot of times it's, you know, not the right match or, you know, not the right coloring, not the right height. Now, I don't tend to do that, but a lot of producers do. So after your your stint at Universal, where'd you go from there? After Universal, I went to a studio called MTM. You remember that? I absolutely. I did a kind of big TV movie there called Riviera. It, it, only big in that it was directed by John Frankenheimer. Uh-huh. So that was a big name to get to direct a TV movie, and we shot it in the south of France. So that was really fun. And I developed that there as a series but it didn't go. That's about the that's about the time, isn't it, when the equalizer surfaced? I came up with the equalizer uh, right before I left Universal. I wrote the pilot, and then it didn't sell initially, and then I'd left, and then they sold it to CBS, and then they got the call, okay, you know, when can Michael shoot the pilot? And they said, well, Michael doesn't work here anymore. He works at MTM. And they basically said, well, we're not going to do it unless he's the, you know, he does at least the pilot. Well, that's a major I, oops on their part, isn't it? Yeah, and I must say MTM, uh, the guys running MTM, really, you know, they, uh, they said, sure, you can go and shoot that. We'll just... That was very generous know, of them. We'll drop and pick him up. Now, he said they said if it gets picked up for a series... Then, you know, he's here and he would just, I mean, he could consult or something, but, you know, he wouldn't be able to do the day to day. But I did do the pilot and then it got picked up. Were you involved in the casting of uh, Edwin Woodward? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because nobody wanted him initially but me. Well, yeah, he's not exactly a, a hot American TV name. How did that come about? No, I knew who he was because having lived in England and he had done a, a British thriller series called Callan which nobody in the States had ever seen. So I wanted him, but CBS, they knew of Breaker Moran, but certainly the studio, uh, Universal, weren't high on the idea. So so I sent him the script, and I said, you have to put four scenes on the videotape for the studio and the network while he was in England. So he does the four scenes, and we send it to Black Tower, and I go up there, and they watch it and they all say look you know he's a terrific actor but this isn't the equalizer I mean, there's no way he's right. british and he's a you know what michael wants his short little fat guy to right. be the equalizer. he's not leading man looking no so we went over to cbs and we ran we ran the tape for harvey shepherd was the head of tv at that time and you know he turned down the lights and after all the wow how about that traffic on the 405 etc um and, and remember there are four scenes so we ran the first scene and after the first scene, Harvey Shepard says, okay, stop, I don't need to see any more of this. And all the Universal guys are looking at me saying, like, see, we told, told you. Yeah. And Harvey Shepard got up, turned the lights on, turned around and said, Michael's right, that's the equalizer. At which point, to quote Michael Gleason, they said, yes, we, we were behind Michael 100%. Of course. 
Right. Suddenly everybody's right. I love it. I was very happy that he got the role. So you went from, so, so the Equalizer's up and running. It's percolating along, as it were. And you're still at MTM. I was at MTM. Then I went to Viacom. Then I went back to Universal. And then when I went back to Universal, I did 41 new episodes of the old Alfred Hitchcock show, which was really great to do. That, um, must, have been, that must have been great fun as a writer. But it was great fun to, to write and to be a part of Hitchcock, yeah, because it was a, it was a fun show and the, you know, the scripts were good. And the first guest star was Melissa Anderson, who then I later married. That was how we met. Is that how you met? Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah, most people think we met on Equalizer because, you know, she played Woodward's uh, daughter in two special two-part episodes. But we actually we actually hadn't met uh, until she did the first episode of, uh, of uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Then at some point in time, uh, you wound up on Kung Fu because you hired me on that show. I did. That was a big deal, bringing David Carradine into television. It was a big deal. Tell, tell me your process there. I mean, you're a very quick study, but you were not a Kung Fu master. How does a writer no. step into something like that and become a Shaolin master of those kinds of scripts? <laughs> well, you know, you, you can do a little reading on it and a little research on it, but eventually it's all about good stories and good storytelling. Because, and the, because the fan base really looked at that show as authentic in many ways. Well, a lot of it was. It was a very fun show to do. It really was. Well, I, 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 I enjoyed writing it because I like to learn something every time I write a script. So I just remember doing intense research, realizing I would never become a green belt, much less become a master. But the philosophy of the Shaolin priests and all that, I thought was intriguing. And what was really inspiring to me was to see David Carradine, whom I'd really only seen like in Westerns and you know, gangster yeah. movies, to see him embrace that persona. He was great for me to work with. It was not a walk in the park, but as far as he and I were concerned and got on, he was great. And one of the reasons was that he loved the scripts. It had a good uplifting spiritual message. Just to show you how shallow I am, I remember the wonderful crew jackets the studio gave everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, which I still have mine. Do you still have your own? Oh, do you? No, no, no. <laughs> You know, if you kept ah, every, if you kept you every crew jacket you ever had, there wouldn't be room for your regular clothes. Well, that's true. I don't have any of my other crew jackets, but I do have uh, I do have kung fu. So from kung fu, you went into a string of. Uh, when I look at your credit list, it looks like a lot of freelance work. I did, yeah. I did a couple of TV movies, and then I was on out the last season of Outer Limits, and I did a show called Call of the Wild uh, that was shot in Vancouver for the Animal Planet, which was the first fictional show they'd ever done. I'm not I'm not going to let you gloss over. Baywatch Nights. Oh, Baywatch Nights! Yeah, well, I, <laughs> one of my my one of my finest hours. For sure. <laughs> you and me both. I recall. Excuse it well. me, yeah, but it was a very very popular show. It was a popular show. Everybody I, I loved that show. Well, I think I just wrote a script for it. You know? Right. I think you and I both got kind of wrangled into that by Maurice Hurley, who at that time was probably yeah, because Maurice show. was on the first season of uh, Kung Fu with me. So, so let's jump forward in time now because I'm really intrigued. The Equalizer feature film starring Denzel Washington is about to come out in, what, three weeks? That's right. Tell me about how that's all come about. It was one of those things where I didn't realize for a long time that I owned feature rights to The Equalizer. Nowadays, if you create a series, um, the studio or the production company, they take all the rights. But in those days, nobody thought, you know, I mean, who, who would, you know, make a movie out of TV show you could see for free. Right. So I retain the feature rights, the book rights. I retain all rights except the TV rights, which are, of course owned by 
by Universal. So once I realized that I actually owned the rights, to, what, so you, you, you don't don't skip over this. How did you come to realize that? I mean, are I you talking, are, are you looking at old contracts? No, I was talking to an agent, as I recall. He was talking about the Equalizer had been one of his favorite shows, and he said, you know, do you ever? He said something to me like, do you ever think about trying to get it made as a feature? And I said, well, that wouldn't be up to me. That'd be up to Universal. He said, I don't. He said, did you ever get an upfront payment, you know, like 20, 25 grand or something for it? I said, no. He said, well, then if they didn't pay you for it, it belongs to you. That's a good agent. Yeah. yeah, and he did. He, well, it was just a you know someone I was chatting with. It wasn't. He did, wasn't my agent. So um, anyway, I looked into it and found that that was indeed the case. So then I got it out there um, with another guy, and we pitched it to two or three studios. First time I ever pitched the Equalizer, the guy, the executive, looked at me and said, "You know who'd be great in this?" I said, "No." He said, "Will Ferrell." <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? I'm in the wrong yeah, room. You make it a comedy, and I said, "Well." I, said, I guess no, he didn't quite get your vision. No, I don't think so. So anyway, I finally got it to this company called Escape Artists. One of the executives there is close to Denzel Washington and said, you know, he would be great. In fact, funnily enough, and I told Denzel this when we were shooting, Melissa, about seven years ago, came into my office and said, you know, it would be a great feature, Robert McCall, Denzel Washington. So anyway, that is all. Seven years later, I'm talking to Denzel. and it's- I think you better keep Melissa around. Yeah, for sure. So so while the feature's in development, what inspired you to start writing a novel? Well, I'd, I'd been in touch with an editor at St. Martin's Press who had been originally with the Weinstein Company, so he was aware of the development of The Equalizer. The very first scene in the novel I wrote without having any idea what the rest of the plot was about, I just and sent it to him, and that was about four years ago. And then when the movie got greenlit, he came back later and said, "Okay, we'll we'll order a novel." When you're writing the novel and you've and you've pre-sold it, basically, are you thinking of the character as Woodward or as Washington? Probably more Woodward than than Washington. Uh, Denzel plays it much more isolatory and intense, and I mean, really brilliantly, I have to say. But it was so a little bit. It was somewhere between the two. I had a vision in my mind. Mm-hmm. And the and the book has been released. The book, uh, yes, yeah, so Martin's Press published it about two weeks ago. So I ex- congratulations. Absolutely, oh, I, I expect you'll see a, a bump in sales once the picture really hits the theaters. Well, I'm hoping so. I mean, it, that would certainly make sense that there's some collateralization there, and uh, particularly if the if the movie gets some good reviews. So is there um, is there is there another Equalizer novel on the way? Because uh, I have a feeling we could be speaking with the next Len Dayton here. Well, <laughs> I would listen. I would be thrilled to write a sequel to the Equalizer, and that would be great. How long did the book take you to write? About eight months, I guess. So when you were writing yeah, your so when you were writing your book, do you set aside a certain amount of hours per day? Yeah. Are, you, are you the kind of guy? Do you ever have writer's block, or do you just are you like well, a machine? I'm not like a machine, but writer's block, you know, I I certainly, if I hit a bump in the road where I know I can't work it out, then I stop. I was very friendly at one time with a guy named Patrick McGowan, you know who that is? Sure. Whenever we'd be together and I was wrestling with some script, he'd say, Michael, let it percolate. And so I'd, um, I'll I'll let it percolate. But Probably good advice. Yeah, it was. What I did on the Equalizer book was I figured to make the deadlines and to... I had to write a chapter a week, and I wrote very long chapters to begin with. Then they all got, then I chopped them all down. But initially, they were like 20 pages. I had to write four pages a day. So I, I would write a chapter a week for, for 20 weeks. So, but you have to have the same kind of discipline that you have in writing a screenplay. 
uh, or a teleplay because otherwise it just it's too hard. It just doesn't get done. So I kept to that discipline of writing four pages a day. You've done so much work and you've worked with so many great actors and actresses. Besides Melissa now, who was the most enjoyable actor and actress that you have worked with? Uh, well, I, you know, Lindsay Wagner was fun to work with. She was terrific. And, you know, I enjoyed working with Carradine. And as I say, he was not a walk in the park, but he he was great with me. And we had and he put a lot of work into into the show. He he was fun. Dennis Weaver was wonderful. I, I would have worked again with him in a heartbeat. David Jansen was wonderful. You know, I, he was a wonderful guy and a wonderful humorous guy. And I like working with Sean Cassidy. He was fun on Hardy Boys. I know two actors I loved working with was Robert Vaughn and uh, David McCallum when I did The Return of The Man from Uncle. Oh yeah, those guys were so they cool. They both became... That was like, a great really show. Just, they really became very good friends of mine. And of course, David's now on NCIS and has a whole new persona. Yeah. uh, Bill Shatner is a good friend of mine. I've had a lot of fun with Bill. He's been, he's never worked for me as an actor, but he directed an episode of Kung Fu and did a terrific job. With with all of your, I mean, you're so multi-talented. You have, you're writing, directing, acting, uh, and just as a person who... I dropped the acting off that. uh, Okay. (laughs) But you're so multifaceted. One, One of the keys I see is your ability to maintain relationships with people you've worked with, which is fairly unusual in the business because, in my experience, the business is we're all intense friends while we're working, and the minute we go off onto something else, we have new friends. Right. Um, well, I've, I've always, yeah, I've always felt a, a great kinship with actors I've worked with and with crews I've worked with, and I try and use same actors again or the same crew again, you know, members of the crew when I can. And, uh, and even if there are lapses, if you've had a good relationship, you can pick up a relationship, even if it's not a close friend, 20 years later, and it's like... Well, it's kind of, it's like, like, this, no kind of like this phone call. Yeah, yeah, and no time's gone. I remember when I was doing BJ and the Bear, you'll, you'll remember this, Bob, we had um, Ed Lauder in it playing Captain Kane. Right. And I hadn't seen Eddie Lauder in years, and I, I directed something for the U.S. Army in uh, a counter-terrorist group. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could tell you about it, but I'd have to kill you. So, oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> so I asked, uh, it was just, it was a five-day shoot, and they, I needed somebody substantial, but there was no money. So I, I called Ed out of the blue, and I said, I know we haven't talked in a long time. Michael, how are you? So anyway, he came and did the gig for me, and uh, it was like no time had gone by at all. I think you can maintain relationships with you know actors and, and crews and people you've worked with. Um, you never know when you're going to get thrown together again. Sure, and I, sure. And usually it's all very genuine. I've, I've really enjoyed the people I've worked with. What is your, your self-assessment? What is your principal talent what what is what is behind this incredible run you've had there are a lot of good writers out there who can't get into show business who've never broken through the studio gates who've never written a single episode much less 150,000 like you have so you have to have something unique going i wonder if you have any notion of what it might be I, I don't. Uh, you know, maybe a visual, uh, sort of visual sense, as I say, I, I tend to see the movie in my mind and then I just write down what I'm, what I've just seen. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's something like that, you know, and a sense of humor. You know, I've had a fairly good sense of humor, you may recall, on and off Indeed. over the years. And that, uh, you know, that helps, you know, both on this page and, and in relationships. So uh, apart from that, I really, I, I, I have no idea. I'm curious, uh, Michael, if you had to do anything all over again in your career, is there anything that you would change? I don't think so, because I never really, I was never in a situation where, you know, I was in a series and then, okay, it's going another year. No, I don't want to do that. So there's always things that you you hope for, but I 
I, I've never said no to something and then later regretted it that I can recall. No. And uh, because you've done so much work in television, I'm curious what you think well, of... I can tell you one thing. Right at the very beginning of my career, I was offered, uh, after I'd done Harry O, I was offered a producer's place on Charlie's Angels, the original. Ah. And I turned uh, That was an iconic TV show for sure. Yeah, and, so, that, and that was pretty stupid. But uh, I don't even remember why I did it at the time. But. Well, Aaron, Aaron Spelling would have loved you. Yeah, well, that would have been fun. I, one of the things that uh, has become kind of a theme for us is there are an awful lot of people interested in show business careers. What advice would you give somebody who was either coming out of school or had serious ambitions to become a writer-producer? How would they break into the business today? Well, obviously, it's, it's a lot tougher now than it was when I broke in. But... Uh, I think the thing is, if you're a writer, unlike unlike an actor, or to a certain extent even a producer, where you know um, you a project has to come to you, or you you can buy the rights to a book or whatever, but a writer or a painter, you know, I mean, there's nothing to stop you sitting down and writing something. I would encourage any young writer to do that because even though the odds against anyone ever bothering to read it are high, those rules get broken. You can do something proactive, i.e., sit down and get something written or put something together or put a website together or buy the rights to a book. And there are things that you can work on that you don't have to wait for someone to say, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. You can do that on your own. And if you're a writer, there's nothing to stop you writing. Great advice. Look at the the shows you really love and, uh, but, you know, write something that you feel is a good representation of your work and your thoughts and your vision. Have ammunition, work on stuff that when an opportunity arises, you're not caught out. Great advice. Yeah, just yeah. Say, saying you're a writer doesn't make you a writer. Writing makes no, you a writer. For writer-producers, you know, there's a lot of guys who can call themselves a producer who don't actually produce anything. But you can certainly, if you're a writer-producer, you can go to work on something that you care about that matters to you, whether you think anybody's going to ever read it or not, because you know what? You never know. Perfect, perfect. Michael, this hour has just flown by, and I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your time. Well, it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you again, Bob, after all these years. It's been and, awesome. Uh, right. Thank you, Michael. Okay, thanks, guys. I, I appreciate your calling. All right, man. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How cool was that? I really enjoyed that podcast. Well, you know, Michael has a lot of class, and he has the background, uh, an unparalleled background. What I am impressed by is the fact that he's not only a phenomenal television and movie writer, and now he's a novelist. And let's get that book so he can autograph it. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of books. We have our book coming out, Where Hollywood Hides, Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. It's available on the website at Where Hollywood Hides at a 20% online discount. It'll be coming directly from the publishers, or it'll be on Amazon or at your local bookstore. I'm really excited about the book. I hope everybody enjoys it. It's been a great experience. Yes, it has. All right, well, that's it for today. This is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. And this is Bob McCullough. I want to say thanks for being with us. See you next time. Today's music is provided by Chance McCullough, and you can hear more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a quick comment or review at iTunes forward slash where Hollywood hides. Those reviews really do help get the word out. And drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash where Hollywood hides and hit that like button. And just as a reminder to our growing audience of listeners, be sure to check out our website at wherehollywoodhides.com for show notes, photos, and the latest showbiz news. And please click onto our Amazon banners to take you directly to the world's largest online shopping mall. 
Whatever you're looking for, from books to movies to supplies, it's at Amazon.com. And the links at WhereHollywoodHides.com are the quickest way to do your shopping. Thank you.